Well, that's the beginning of the episode. <laughs> so it is. Listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi. We're here to talk to you, gentle listener, about books, but we're not going to talk to you about Scotch. Before you go on, I just yep. want to say something else that doesn't just sound like I'm sort of a horn. Oh, okay. That, that was it. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> the Ethan Horn. I just was like, all I did was go, and like, <laughs> that's not a, that's not a fetching intro. Hey, I do like the image that someone could have if they only listened to that much of your voice <laughs> of me saying, "This is Ethan," and then squeezing like a bicycle horn. <laughs> One must imagine sort of a a Wilson situation, right? In which you are uh, uh, somehow isolated on an island making this podcast for your sanity with mm-hmm. your co-host, which is, of course, like four sticks taped together with a bicycle <laughs> horn you found as a head. <laughs> this is Ethan. <laughs> but I mean, according to like multiple psychologists who have analyze that film wilson probably saved tom hanks's life oh almost definitely so what we're saying is i have saved your life and you owe me a life debt things have escalated yep uh so this is now my podcast with my co-host michael the wookie (laughs) (laughs) there we go okay uh well then i'm just gonna drink all of my wookie scotch over here um i'm pretty sure owing me a life debt you definitely owe me me scotch you know i just learned that chewbacca isn't an ewok like i just figured that out it was such a wookie mistake all right now i'm (laughs) drinking all the scotch no (laughs) that's a that's a like not in this podcast thing you need to be punished for like pretty severely good uh, uh that's my wife's boss's joke so oh <laughs> uh, okay okay there you go uh we are going to be drinking gentle listener lafroy 10 year single malt scotch whiskey so please sir yes i want some more i uh, know yeah I'm that not. was a accurate portrayal of victorian uh, uh child labor factories yeah, sounded sounded right to me. Dickens Dickens edited it. Really, they were just uh, feeding them scotch instead of gruel. Man, can I be an orphan working in a <laughs> labor factory? Um, yep, it was all Guns and Roses. Guns and Roses. <laughs> yeah, great. On that note, where's your wife? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I've uh, turned this show on a new axle. Um, <laughs> And now that we've become the pun podcast, <laughs> please, Karen, 
<laughs> Save us, us from ourselves. Show us the stairway to heaven. Wait, no, shoot, that was Led Zeppelin. Oh. oh. Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. And now let's get started on this monstrosity. (laughs) Wait, I'm trying to remember a new Guns N' Roses song. (laughs) But I can't. Here, let me set my sketch down while you think of it. Did you just lose? No, we haven't cleaned glasses. Because Karen had read the rules, so right. I thought, man, I should have I should have just clinked with you real quick in the middle of that sentence. <laughs> that would have been the galaxy brain move right there. Ooh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, nope, can't, nope, can't do it. Uh, skunk. Skunk. <laughs> skunk is the one I was going to do, even if you didn't. I oh, wanna, good. I want that on record. I wasn't just being Even though I did cat. it first. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure, Ethan. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've introduced a third co-host to this podcast. The bicycle horn. Ethan the bicycle horn. Ethan the bicycle horn. It's going to get real confusing, but at least we don't have to rename the podcast. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Okay, so we can today, keep the current name, which is a uh, uh, yeah. Just look at your podcast feed; you can see it. Yeah, um, a clumsy trap. Yeah, it was. It was. See, that's the traps never work. It's a fourth episode trap. This is only the second episode. <laughs> um. So we're going to find out today uh, what Ethan the Bicycle Horn's opinions are <laughs> on Wide Sargasso Sea by Gene Reese. Um, so does Ethan the Bicycle Horn have anything to say? Hi! Hi! <laughs> he really only has the one thing to say. Okay, good. He's a, he's basically the opposite of, uh, of, uh, Leaky, our, our last third co-host. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Notice I didn't lose even then. You didn't. Even though that's not a rule for this one. Right. It's... Ipso post facto. Factotum. Uh-huh. Yeah. To quote Eugenia Nesco. 
Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually be a, a gracious host here, and I'm going to lend you the floor for a moment. If there's anything you want to start this episode on, I started with sort of my questions like, and things last time. Legitimately, was something. Oh, okay. But and now I have no idea what it was. Did uh, Ethan the bicycle horn steal that from your brain? Um, I'd like to blame it on him. Oh, I oh. do know what it was. Good. Um, why? Point for discussion. Good question word. Why did... I can't remember the mother's name. Antoinette. Is Antoinette the mother or the... Or Bertha? Yes. Why did Bertha's mother mm -hmm. go insane? Uh, she was made to. That's what Christophine says. Um, I can't remember the page number of that. No. Nope. Um, oh, there, 94. And it's it's me, uh, this is me sort of, um, sort of like deflecting back to you the thing you've tried to do to me. Oh, okay. Uh... Which, because we're in Minnesota, you framed it as, like, a nice thing, but uh -huh. I know that it's a thing where you're trying to make me do the work <laughs> of the podcast. And so now what I'm doing is just plagiarizing you from the last episode. But it was, oh. to be fair, it was a legitimate thing that you sort of brought up, and, and we, we mentioned it a little bit, and it got lost in the flow of talking about other stuff. Yeah. Um, so it, it this is the one thing that, that sort of uh might have occurred to me when you asked that last uh you know anything else you want to cover but it was a podcast opener question rather than a podcast closer yeah that... i would say um what why does uh mm -hmm. why does bertha's mother go insane um that so that sequence of events uh is kind of clouded over by what i think is um at least intended to be in the narrator the narr narrators the narrator's um mind a little british a, a little credibility i get know, it narrator uh, like the, the the cloud of childhood memory and perception yeah um that she doesn't fully understand that her mother is going insane, and so the reader is not given that communication clearly. Either. Sure. Um, when you get to page ninety-four, um, this is where Christophine talks about um, the madness of Antoinette's mother, uh, and says uh, it's the last paragraph on that page. They drive her to it. When she lose her son, she lose herself for a while, and they shut her away. They tell her she is mad. They act like she is mad. Question, question, but no kind word, no friends, and her husband, he go off, he leave her. They won't let me see her. I try, but no, they won't let Antoinette see her. In the end, mad, I don't know. She give up, she care for nothing. That man who is in charge of her, he take her whenever he want, and his women talk. That man and others, then they have her. Ah, there is no God. Um, Which is like, if you, you know, if you can follow it, it's a little bit between the the dialect and, and what's left out, it's a little bit hard to follow, but it's a pretty horrifying, uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, almost a sequence compressed into that, into that paragraph. Right. Um, and to me, it feels like foreshadowing for what happens to mm -hmm. Bertha. 
Oh, um, sure. And it makes me wonder... I'm going to bring this up, and I think it's related, but... Uh, sure. You know, maybe that I'm saying two completely unrelated things, but... Um, it makes me wonder if not only if it's if it's foreshadowing and that you know if you if you apply it it paints an even grimmer picture of a of a mm -hmm. the unnamed mr rochester than mm -hmm. um you know than there otherwise would be um but i oh it makes me wonder if it's related to um, what I'm tempted to call, and I, I was actually going to frame this as a question, but now I can't figure out how to do that. Uh, but what I what I'm tempted to call Bertha's great sin, okay? Because of course, um, if I've understood sort of the action correctly, uh, she and she and Rochester, who I'm going to call Rochester, even though it's sort of uh yeah a, a breaking of of the rules in a way um she she and her husband uh were what the young people call hot and heavy for a while mm -hmm. and then it almost seems that that something turned almost like a switch is flipped right um what what do you think that what where does what's the hinge of that of that door or opening or or shutting that's a very good question uh i don't think it's very clear in the book what happens um see to me and i don't know um and again this is another one of those uh uh one of those things where uh hey i should have like at least, you mm -hmm. know, dog-eared a page or something. Ah, sure. Um, but to me, it seemed quite clearly uh, as if her her great sin, the thing that the thing that uh, um, you know, the thing that she did was trying to use Obea on Rochester when she oh yeah 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 feels yeah. like he's mm -hmm. um growing more distant yeah growing more distant yep and that's the uh the thing that she does and it's a love potion really right basically yeah. uh and basically you know it's it's another one of those things and you alluded to this last time you can probably argue or or debate about how supernatural oh uh, sure this this is um but like, like whether I mean, you you if you debate it back far enough, you get into sort of existential questions of uh of you know sort of sort of by force alone adjacent mm. questions about does the thing have an inherent power? Does it have the power that you give it? Right. Um, but it almost doesn't matter in a certain sense because um, the great sin isn't. Uh, as probably if this was a Victorian novel, the novelist would be obliged to have you believe it wasn't the magic itself. Right. It was the attempt to use the magic on this particular person. Right. And I think a lot of that lives and and, and has its its uh, roots in some of the stuff we talked about last time about, uh, you know, the, the 
white Creole, the, the Jamaican born, you know, British people, uh, and, and culturally Jamaican British people versus the England born British. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that you try to use this, this, uh, um, and it, it's certainly racially inflected and I'm avoiding using some of, some of the words that, you know, the Victorians themselves, among others, might have used. Oh, but, sure. Uh, that you try to use this magic of, or this this um, ritual that is of this culture that's so far beneath an English gentleman, mm-hmm. a, a you know white British-born aristocratic Englishman. This this stuff is the opposite of that, mm-hmm. and that's. Uh, um, Again, to me, feels very much sort of like the hinge into, um, you know, being treated the way that Bertha is treated by the time we get to the action of Jane Eyre, uh-huh. um, or the action of, of part three of, of this book. Right. Um, and to me, I, 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 I maybe just, just grasping intuitively, but there's a, there feels like there's a strong set of connections between that and Bertha's mom being driven insane Mm -hmm. um and I I again I think it has to do with that that line on on page 18 none of you understand about us Mm -hmm. um why would why would Bertha and it's interrogated a little bit um but why would Bertha use Obea on uh this person why would that be a solution she would even think to consider um because both the you know the the um black folks that she that she consults or that she that she works with to do this thing they warn her off but they say this isn't your thing to to mess with and certainly the um the white british would also have have warned her off of it um and i'm i'm not suggesting i have a a solution there but um Mm -hmm. it it feels it feels connected also to to this this page ninety four um, Bertha's Bertha's mother you know getting told she's mad right um, it, there's there's a lot I think in there about whether you know you you could you could use these passages I think to construct a, a literary study of madness within oh, yeah. within this book and probably reaching out to other other texts as well and certainly to Jane Eyre oh yeah um, but I think I think maybe these two these two things are sort of a crux of um, the the taking of Bertha from an othered character and making her the central character that all of these things that to uh um uh to Charlotte Bronte make make Bertha this like exotic mm. you know maybe tragic but certainly discardable character uh you know there to to uh I've been reading Walker Percy again so I'm in semiotics <laughs> language but to uh to Charlotte Bronte they almost are are signs or even signifiers where to Bertha they're her world right um and you know I think that's that's in um post-colonial literature often and and feminist literature often especially um 
feminist literature from the late 20th and, and 21st century, uh, a lot of the project there is to use fiction to, instead of, you know, othering people or using symbols to, to make them exotic, um, it's to embody them instead. Because if you, if you make something exotic, mm-hmm. there's inherently a distance from it. Even if it's, even if it's right. the awe of, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, Richard Burton's take on the Arabian Nights or whatever, there's, there's, even within that awe, there's an othering. And to take that and, um, turn it on its head to put the reader in mm-hmm. to the world of that that other person um again i think i think is is a major part of the certainly the the project that this novel fits within mm-hmm. um and to me to me i think it it certainly reads as if that's part of what jean reese was was doing was or at least attempting sure. to do yeah that's really interesting um it's well it's it's that uh tension between um making more foreign but also making more approachable um mm-hmm. or I, I don't i can't think of a better word um theologically you'd think transcendent versus imminent um mm-hmm. but we're talking about a, a a human character that's um made that way and with the 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 naming of of characters too which um was alluded to uh previously too you know that uh that the mother was told she was mad is similar in in scope to when rochester the unnamed rochester decides that antoinette is not antoinette she's bertha right um renaming her because he wants her to be how he's defining her total backfire um (laughs) uh <laughs> and that's mildly you touched on the idea of naming last episode but yeah um yeah that's all certainly wrapped up in here right right it's it's connected um it's it's a definition that's imposed from the outside um rather than self-chosen um or not necessarily even self-chosen but like it's it's the in in perhaps intention it's it's a uh, positive like even um you know his his choice of calling her bertha instead of antoinette is to avoid her repeating her mother's mistakes right. um so that she doesn't turn into her mother and go crazy right um and you know the the mother being told she's mad is probably intended to be so that she can be helped um and and so you know address the problem here's the problem let's define the problem so you can address it but if it's not excuse me correct it creates the problem right you know um so these these good intentions and that's something too that uh, jean reese does interestingly she she's fair to all these other characters i think um you know this this falls definitely within the scope of like feminist literature and such but it doesn't just vilify the the men right in the book it they are full characters and they have good intentions here and there um they're misguided in, in a lot of cases too um so that's yeah and i will say i you know i alluded to 
the idea that uh, in the last episode that like narratives from from the period depicted often um, you know written by by white people like I've seen you know narratives written by I want to say French plantation owners from mm. the Caribbean and certainly English English ones who are would, would, that are very self-pitying they're they're very oh, much sure. you know and um there there was a, a precarious position when you were the only white person surrounded by a plantation of slaves that you're keeping mm. sort of under your heel even though they vastly outnumber you like that's a very precarious position right. um but you know from our perspective uh and and especially from the perspective of of black writers who have come to themselves reflect on that period it's it's pretty hard to uh um have a ton of pity on them and mm-hmm. i i could be wrong but i feel like uh jean reese in portraying her her white characters she especially her her main um characters and her viewpoint characters like she avoids any of that like there's yeah. never um there's never like a, a self-pity or like uh, right there's an honesty about their place in the world mm-hmm. um and if you know i don't know that she's interested in looking at it this way but if if she was you get the sense that she would say yeah i had i had a better position than some and worse than others yeah um, yeah yeah, the, yeah the, more that's just honest the, approach the thought i had in in relation to fairness as, as well yeah mm-hmm. yeah definitely um i, I want to build upon that scene there that uh is on page 94 this is like yeah. really at the crux of a lot of what's going on in the novel here this conversation between christophine and um the unnamed rochester mm-hmm. um after her speech about uh, Antoinette's mother and how she went crazy, um, uh, she's talking to Rochester and says, uh, it grieved me, this towards the top of page 95, it grieved me what happened to her mother and I can't see it happen again. You call her a doll, she don't satisfy you, try her once more, I think she satisfy you now. If you forsake her, they will tear her in pieces like they did her mother. Uh, and so she's she's pushing and trying to get Rochester to take care of Bertha, to, to mm-hmm. give her what she needs. Um, and so he says, I will not forsake her. I said wearily, I will do all I can for her. Um, you will love her like you did before. Um, and so like he's got a little internal monologue here. But like this is about the most hopeful the book gets. It gets mm-hmm. right to this point where it seems like he's finally going to do the right thing for her take care of her help her um give her everything she needs here um but then christophine goes on kind of interrupting not exactly interrupting his internal monologue she he gives a pause um says nothing uh then she says it's she won't be satisfied she is a creole girl and she have the sun in her tell the truth now she don't come to your house in this place england they tell me about she don't come to your beautiful house to beg you to marry with her no it's you come all a long way to her house. It's you beg her to marry. And she love you and she give you all she have. Now you say you don't love her and you break her up. What do you do with her her money, eh? Uh, her voice was still quiet but with a hiss in it when she said money. 
which that phrase itself, there's a hiss in it when she says money. Money does not have an S sound in it. So mm-hmm. how does that money get hissed? Money. money. Yeah. Um, it uh, makes you pause and think about it. But then uh, Rochester. It's such a great sentence. It, it really is. Um, I thought, this is Rochester again, I thought, of course, that is what all the rigmarole is about. I no longer felt dazed, tired, half hypnotized, but alert and wary, ready to defend myself. So it seems like Christophine has almost been putting a spell on him throughout this dialogue mm-hmm. that he's uh, getting hypnotized, uh, zombified, uh, if you will, uh, in order to do her bidding and in, in, in even just the sense of take care of Bertha, take care of Antoinette, right. be a good husband, do the right thing. Um, but then this word money is what breaks that spell. Um, and so he thinks, oh, it's just all about money. You're after money. Everybody's after money. Uh, so forget it. I'll sure. take care of it. I'll do what I want to do. Um, well, and, but you have to keep in mind that this section is from Rochester's yes. perspective. Uh, and not only that, it's like if you're like a the sort of you know weird structuralist that that Mm -hmm. i tend to be and you pay attention to some of these rhythms it's like you've had i want to say all of part no wait this whole most of this is most of part two from rochester's perspective uh like the middle part i think it starts from her perspective that's right and then it's his perspective and then it ends from her her perspective but there's like some kind of weird like it doesn't feel like if you were just building a narrative along, you know, lines of like, okay, chapter one is from character A and chapter two is from character B and they get equal right. time. Um, the shifts seem very intentional. Like they're they're accomplishing yeah. things, which forces you in a way to pay attention to who's telling the story. Right. And of course, um, and again, to whatever extent this, this uh, book fits into... Um, I don't know that it would be post-colonial, but certainly colonial era mm-hmm. narratives. Um, or maybe again, I haven't done as much uh, scholarship as I should on on post-colonialism to be able to say. But um, both again, colonial era and post-colonial narratives. Uh, the the one very important aspect is who gets to tell the story. Yes. Um, and. Often texts in the 20th century that are responding to Victorian texts um, are very concerned with that because Victorian texts tend to get told by um, white people and aristocrats, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the, the privileged perspective. Um, right. And so, again, you know, I, I did my soapbox already about um, sort of sort of a privileging some of those other perspectives, but even within the narrative doing that, like it's, it's important who's, who's telling the story. Like, why do we need to know Rochester's specific right. interpretation and, well, and take? And that's this. interesting in this, just in general, that Jean Reese decided to give him that voice, uh, to let him speak his perspective here. Why was that important? Yeah. Um, why did he need to, express things it it certainly could have from beginning to end all been from antoinette's perspective perspective um but there was a deliberate choice to give a section of it to rochester do you almost feel like that's part of that 
um, almost avoidance of self-pity. Because if the, sure. if the whole narrative was from Antoinette's perspective, yeah, it could easily fall into just like her talking about all her grievances or all the Absolutely. ways that she'd been wronged. Yeah, then, uh, but yeah, then giving Rochester this, this section, um, problematizes that. Yeah. Yeah, so. Or not, not even problematizes, but it, it makes it, you know, maybe problematizes is, mm-hmm. a, is a valid word there, but, because what I was going to say is it makes it, it makes it seem like Rochester in some ways is also, if not a victim, he's also, yeah out of control of his own circumstances right like he perceives these things and he he has these mm-hmm. these prejudices or these things he's been he's been taught and that he values right um and a lot of that is just in him quite apart from any greed or oh, any yeah. you know uh deliberate choice of right spite well that comes out of jane Eyre too just his biography yeah previous to when jane Eyre met him um that he's the second son so he's not going to inherit the land or or anything um but he is pushed to do other things for the sake of the family name and and everything right uh, including going and marrying Antoinette. Sure. um but then you know through a set of tragic circumstances he is given this um manner and and everything um which you know all all those particulars um in the the society of victorian england that that would allow something like that to happen that's the the great victorian writers exploited those things really really well Mm -hmm. um and that's something that is is done here in jane eyre um, to give him that and so it's expanded upon even more that's just like a little throwaway thing that you know his father and brother died and so he inherited this house that's just right. tossed in there for Jane Eyre um, and the readers uh, of that time would have understood it and like okay so that's that's why he's inherited this and it doesn't necessarily matter to who he is as a character in Jane Eyre you could you could go without it uh, but here, Gene Reese uh, expands on that, and like you said, does make him out to be um, a victim in in some sense too. Um, right. I would. It, it, there's an interesting um, thing I've also been thinking since you quoted that. Yeah. That paragraph um, on on ninety ninety five. Yeah. Uh, specifically, that sentence that we that we highlighted. Um, what you do with her money. Yep. Uh, her voice was still quiet, but with a hiss in it when she said money. Uh, there is also, and I want to say that it's not the first time by a long shot that this image has come up. The hiss, of course, has, has connotations of a snake. Oh, sure. And, um, you almost, especially in the, in the sections that Rochester's narrating, you almost get the sense that the money is the, the snake in, Mm -hmm. in the Eden, um, of their of their relationship um right and uh one of the like one of the things about that being if you go a little bit farther down the page um as a uh christine's trying to sort of talk rochester into 
letting Bertha go, letting her keep just some of the money, and and right, you know, if if Rochester, you know, isn't isn't in love with her, like don't torture her, just just let her go, you know, um, and Christine says, uh, Christine specifically added maliciously, mm-hmm. she marry with someone else, she forget about you and live happy. A pang of rage and jealousy shot through me then. Oh no, she won't forget. Um, yep. It's almost as though less than the money, that, like, jealousy of Bertha yeah. as a person, as a, as a you know, set of affections is almost more, mm-hmm. if not, maybe almost more important or almost more like his actual motivation. Sure. Um, uh, one of the previous owners of my book wrote in all caps ironic in the margins there sure um because if the threat is that Bertha is going to go marry someone else and forget all about rochester right. when in fact rochester is the one who marries someone else and forgets all about bertha exactly um or at least that's what he tries to do if you if you read the end of jane Eyre into this this book and and allow the fact that bertha does die uh and rochester remarries jane Eyre. Um, and that's part of the canon of this story as well. Sure. Uh, if you allow that to be the case, he still lives on with the scars of Bertha. Right. He he lives on paralyzed and blinded, not completely, but like maimed uh, and blinded. Right. Um. So, and there are hints to to that end for him uh, through this book too. Um. But. And I have to suspect that he like... doesn't get to forget about her. So when he says she won't forget. He also won't forget. He's not allowed to. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's, there's like a really interesting double irony. Right. There. Um, Yeah, I I was going to say, like, I I have to suspect that some of the um, defenders of this, of Jane Eyre, the, you know, the Mm. people who, who like it, despite its, its, you know, warts, um, (laughs) that that's, that's where they'd go in defending Defending it from the charge, I sort of uh, uh, laid at oh. its feet a few times last episode. The idea that Bertha almost gets gets used as a plot device and then thrown away mm-hmm. is the fact that she becomes this this catalyst or this uh, um, you know that that Rochester certainly does not get to just actually toss her aside and just go live with Jane and be happy. That there's a price right. that needs to be needs to be paid there. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, when I look at it that way, I probably come the closest that I that I ever will to liking liking Jane Eyre. That is um, my sole aim on this podcast to make you like the books that you claim to hate. Uh, well, <laughs> you got twenty three minutes on Jane Eyre, and we're we're only about twenty four percent of the way there. So. Good, good, all right. Um, not. I mean, if anyone could do it, you could. But mm-hmm. um, the uh uh. Oh, another thing that I noticed on 96, um, we're still in this dialogue. We're still uh, um, Christine and, right. and Rochester going back and forth. Um, and Rochester says he's going to bring Bertha to the doctors in, in Spanish Town and to her brother. Um, and that they're the ones who can take care of her because she's obviously not well. Mm-hmm. Um, and towards the bottom of 96, uh, Christine spits on the floor and says her brother richard mason is no brother to her uh you think you fool me you want her money but you don't want her it is in your mind to pretend she is mad i know it the doctors say what you tell them to say 
Um, then she mm. says Richard will say what what uh, what you want him to say. Um, uh, and then the key uh, to this connection I was making earlier, she will be like her mother. Uh, and, and, you know, Christine's basically saying, would you do that for money? Um, mm-hmm. And I think... I don't know if I if there's something I missed where where that gets like more directly paid off, but I think that's just um, in you know the the Kundaran term of, of a novel embod- embodying ambiguity. Um, that's part of the the ambiguity that this novel embodies is the question mm-hmm. of is Rochester the unnamed Rochester is he doing this for money or is he doing it f- out of out of jealousy. Yeah. And I think it's, I think you could probably, the more I think about it, I think you could probably evaluate it both ways. Yeah. Um, that, uh, uh, like, Rochester, you know, he, he shows all the signs of a, of a brash and, and jealous and proud young man, um, going back to to the idea that that you know using this this like uh creole magic on him was was bertha's great sin but mm-hmm. um you know and, and that his his actions are motivated by by a lot of those very sort of you know popular parlance hot emotions right the, the yeah. kind that that make you act rashly and and quickly and brashly um or and or he's motivated by the cool emotions of um of you know calculating knowing that knowing the the inheritance laws and that you know as soon as he marries her mm-hmm. um he's her i don't know what the all the legal terms are but he basically gets to manage her money while she's alive and right. and uh you know gets to uh inherit it when she when she dies right um and you know is it is it one or the other or both is it those those you know hot mm-hmm. emotions or those cool machiavellian sort of emotions that that drive him to uh right to the conclusion and like i think the only reason that question is is valid is one is more forgivable yes <laughs> exactly <laughs> um yeah and that's yeah I, I i don't know and and that's the the question is there you can read the answer both ways it's it's am, ambiguous um and it's 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 right there too where uh that footnote comes in that he says i would give my eyes never to have seen this abominable place yeah. uh, yes. and christine says uh she laughs and that's the first damn word of truth you speak you choose what you give eh and the footnote is in Jane Eyre. Rochester is blinded and maimed by the fire at Thornfield Hall. Okay. So there, you know, you've got that foreshadowing um, right following that, which which gives more credence to the the irony note uh, right. in that previous passage. It's also um, you could if if we're following the thread of potential like borderline supernatural. Oh yeah, you know, mm-hmm. elements. If Christophine does have some element of a. Uh, mm-hmm of prophecy or or spiritual power of of some right. kind you could read that that dialogue from her as you know 
as uh-huh. like a second sight Here, kind of a here's 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 connection. more more to that then sure. um right at the bottom of 96 bleeding on a 97 she continues talking uh you choose what you give eh? then you choose you meddle in something and perhaps you don't know what it is she began to mutter to herself oh, yes so there there she is like she here he's he's chosen the curse that he's going to receive and she starts muttering yeah uh which implies that she's using magic right here uh in, not in petois i knew the sound of petois now yeah i was gonna say in a in a book that is at least in our edition barely over a hundred pages of narrative mm-hmm. um he the the double emphasis on not in patois i know knew the sound of patois now that's right that's not a um charlotte bronte-esque uh having one thought and then elaborating on it over and over for no reason <laughs> um just thought I'd slip that one in. No, oh, good, uh, good. You, you see, now that I've revealed to you my plan to make you like books you hate, you you were just yeah, the, your heels in even more. Exactly, <laughs> which of course is stage one because then I become more brittle and you exactly you break me out. Easier to break. Uh, you you beat me over the head with East of Eden until I <laughs> fall down. Um, That's right. <laughs> but no, the you know the there's not a there's not a wasted sentence in this book, and so not at all doubly emphasizing. Oh, that's that's a thing too that like Jean Reese um was so particular about every word she wrote that after this book was published, she was mad at her editor for letting her publish it because there were some wasted words in it. And when she was pressed for what those words were, she said um, one was quite. And the other, I can't remember, but there were like two words that that were in here that shouldn't have been in there that she thought were wasted. Um, That's, uh, that like... That level of perfectionism and obsession over the text, um, is like admirable. I mean, yeah, it all, it just, it, she's a woman after my own heart. Right, right. Or I'm a man after hers, but, um... Depending on how time works. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, but your your point stands. Not a single word or sentence is wasted here. So that double emphasis just highlights the otherness of whatever her muttering is. Yeah, <clears throat> that it's no. not just a meaningless jibber jabber, but it's also not something he understands. Exactly, and again, you could you know, and this is probably one of like the the like you know ap english quiz answers to why do we get rochester's perspective here like you couldn't have this conversation just from antoinette's perspective uh but at the same time um that double emphasis you could interpret it as just just uh something that stood out to rochester because he is has or, Mm -hmm. or is othering these these people right mm-hmm. like yeah the, it could it, you know it could be christophine has has given up on this conversation and moved on and is muttering in mm-hmm. you know in her own language about like the eggs she's gonna have for dinner yeah and rochester is interpreting it a certain way but again that goes back to that idea of is is someone mad because you call them mad or do you call them mad because they are mad how does right. that relationship right. work well, and here, here, like this, this is Christophine's last scene in the novel. She she disappears after this, right? Um, but she her last line is kind of a punchy last line. Um, mm-hmm. she yes. says, "Read and write." I don't know. After he says, "You can write to Antoinette when she's in England." You know, you can yeah. write to her. Read and write. I don't know other things. I know. Yeah, which is nice and ominous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
it, it, it relates back to, to like Christophine when she was talking with Antoinette. I can't remember the page number or, or exactly where it is. Um, but Antoinette thinks she's just insane for, um, thinking like, I don't, I don't know that such a place as England exists. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't believe in it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like as a reader and as the character of Antoinette, that's absurd. Of course it exists. Right. Like, right. But, you know, I've never been there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it's it's the question. Um, it, 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 there's the, the idea of experiential knowledge, um, which uh, it, I, I, I don't know how much it relates. I, for one, I don't know how much Hebrew or um, uh, biblical theology Jean Reese was, was thinking of here, but um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't just to know that such a thing is but it's an experiential knowledge right um that's that's um conceived of there to experience uh and therefore know um good and evil which getting back to that that snake imagery and right. such um yeah i don't know uh but i mean there there there's definitely like biblical images here on the same page at the bottom of 97 there's the the uh there's a cock crowed um <laughs> as Rochester is writing a letter, um, which would remind uh of the, the 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 crowing of the rooster when Peter betrayed Jesus or, or right, right. um denied him. Um and that that's an image that's repeated a couple of times in the book too. There's one footnote that uh that marks it. I don't know where it is exactly. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so this it's there. There's some of that there. Yeah, uh, and even a few lines down. A hundred years, a thousand, all the same to Le Bon Dieu. Mm. And to Baptiste, too. Uh, Le Bon Dieu, of course, mm-hmm. French for the good, good lord. lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, note I would like to put here, I think I may have said Jamaica some of the times I meant to say Dominica. Oh, sure. And, uh... I just want to confess that's in here. <laughs> I don't need absolution, but I just need it on the record. It's a safe space, so we've established that. Yeah, we've established that many times over this podcast, and yet we have keep... never demonstrated it. Yeah, and <laughs> you do keep laying traps for me, which I don't uh, appreciate. It's true. Um, yeah, I you know, this this is one of those books, uh, and we we mentioned this last episode too that I wish we both wish we would have like read it at least one more time before discussing it neither of us did um (laughs) um there's so much going on we just spent uh, a whole half hour at least talking about three pages yeah um it it, i feel like we could do that through the whole book you could easily work through this book at probably more than a half hour per three pages yeah probably a half hour per page if you wanted to absolutely um and i do like even like with with classics and and so forth i don't um always like try to hew to a particular edition or Mm -hmm. anything like that but um this is one where i was I, I bought this book years ago you know mm. it was one of those ones that someone probably in grad school first recommended to me um and there are certain books where i just know that they're gonna kick my butt the first time i read them <laughs> uh no matter what i what i do so um and just 
just having paged through this one, I knew I was going to do that. So whenever I bought my copy, I quite deliberately bought the Norton Critical Edition. Because, you know, you mentioned at the at the beginning about a third of the, if that, of the page count in this book is the text itself. And the right. rest is all supporting materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even the text has wonderful, uh, like, footnotes and, and stuff that I, I really helped um you know i knew both historically and in literature i certainly was loosely familiar with a lot of the contexts for this but mm-hmm. even so like the the footnotes were enormously helpful um oh yeah the norton critical editions of shakespeare are some of my favorites um because they're they're like you know there are other good editions of shakespeare but um the norton mm-hmm. ones are are often of a denseness to match the text of shakespeare and when you have a really dense text feel like norton does often does a extremely good job yeah and they do their research (laughs) yeah and you know they get a lot of a lot not just one but a lot of well-qualified you know voices uh to chime in and um for a text like this i think they're especially helpful absolutely um you know there are plenty of texts where uh, i could probably take or leave them and i might not make use of the supplemental materials but this one Mm -hmm. you know yeah i Right. Well, I, I guess we're borderline doing our recommendations already, but yeah, right, uh, right, yeah, getting close anyway. Um, yeah, I would, I would recommend the the Norton text specifically. Yes, uh, I want to make um, just another note before we get to the end here. Just, yeah. a, I, I don't know how much I have to say about this. It's just maybe a pattern that I observe here. Um, it's what. In some of the biographical information about Jean Rhys that's connected with the book, mm-hmm. uh, you see how similar the fictional Antoinette is to her. Um, one detail in particular that she spent some time living in a nunnery. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for Antoinette, in that nunnery, she winds up having a dream. It's at the end of part one. She says, I dreamed I was in hell. Um, my uh, half-blood prince wrote in the margin here, uh, hell is England. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and which like you think of the, the classical imagery of hell being fire, um, and such. So that, that, that recurring image of fire, um, there's also the recurring image of mirrors, uh, recurring image of dreams. They're all kind of united. And then you've got the zombies and the, uh, Obea stuff that's all mixed in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, putting all of that stuff together together um you're faced with the question of identity yeah Um, absolutely who are you who am i um the 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 parrot calling uh kiela who's there right um (laughs) who who is is the question there um and it's when he sees someone he doesn't know um and in her her dream at the end which is a dream of fire um, connected with other mirrors that she's seeing there, um, and this this uh, overarching concept of Obeya and and the the zombies, which are the living dead. She's got these these lines about um, death. There's the the death that everyone knows about, and then there's the the real death. Right. Um, which one is that? Um, uh, and. This, the the conclusion and some of the criticism hints at this too the 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 final paragraph of this novel gives antoinette a triumph Mm -hmm. um or at least 
the possibility of the triumph or even just the triumph in having a choice. Right. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, having agency. Yes. Agency is a, is a really key word here. Like a lot of feminist criticism, um, especially sort of taking apart tropes, you know, of, a uh, depictions of women in literature often he talks about agency um Mm because like the surface level thing to talk about is like often uh defined as strength like you Uh. the the concept of the strong female character Mm -hmm. which is just um rightfully reviled by a lot of (laughs) a lot of people uh a lot of feminists um Mm -hmm. specifically because strength can be uh just as as compromised or compromising as any other characteristic if it's not given mm-hmm. agency um, right and so yeah a lot of what i you know would the soapbox i was on earlier you know the idea of um uh giving giving a character back you know giving a, a an othered character back an identity or giving them back a world um mm-hmm. the attempt also is to give them back agency give them back the the ability to make their excuse me make their own decisions um Mm -hmm. and i think you know i think that's absolutely right that in the end um rather than being a a plot device or being a Mm. an archetype the ending gives um bertha a a choice It, it it uh has her making a choice um, and that's like right again that's as as much that's as important within a text within a story for a character to be truly um mm-hmm. three-dimensional to be truly human yeah right? because you know even even uh uh marginalized people or or other people or you know the the downtrodden um they're faced with choices every day and those choices themselves are often circumscribed, especially the more marginalized you are. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to take away a character's choice or the, or even the idea that they might be making choices Mm -hmm. is one of the surest ways to dehumanize them. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's making me think about, um, some terminology that we use in, literature and, and such too to to call someone an agent of chaos which you sure. could apply to bertha you know she's right. an agent of chaos so something else has its own agency and she works for that right um which to say in literature that something or someone is an agent of chaos um is to say that they are an agent of the plot right um they belong to the author right <clears throat> and and only to the author but to have your own agency Right. Um, which is something interesting. You've got an author here in Jane Reese who gives her character her own choice right. by not writing it, by not writing what happens at the end. Um, the character is allowed to outlive the author. Right. In that way. Um, and they, and I, I don't want to bury here the, the other thing that you said. And again, when we talk about our, our secret third podcast, oh, of course. um, the the one about this one could all be about about that question of identity um, uh-huh. and who are you and and you know I I brought up several times I think we both brought up several times that that placement of Bertha within 
within her cultural context of uh uh yeah you know being a being of the of dominica of the caribbean mm-hmm. um but not in the same way that like the black culture of oh, the caribbean yeah. is being british but not being british in the same way that someone born uh right. in england and born into the the oh, sort of top level of the aristocracy was um and it it just uh i was glancing at the preface to this this norton mm. edition and i don't know it doesn't list an author for the preface possibly uh judith raskin i the, think that's the, the editor of the, yeah. of the book um but i just want to quote real quickly uh uh it is an irony that reese who always hated england and english culture <laughs> And who perceived herself to be as a displaced colonial, the object of English disdain and hatred, should be declared a light of English culture and made at the age of 88 a commander of the Order of the British Empire for her contributions to literature. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think po- possibly, you know, when we when we question, we strip away all the ideas of, of mm-hmm. uh, is this a revisionist book? Is it a feminist book? Is it a colonial book? Is it a post-colonial book? um the most like surface level reading that i'm comfortable with doing is is the idea that maybe this is gene reese using literature using this english language literary tradition to carve out a place for a character Mm -hmm. that finally she can identify with like maybe this is just her following that old sort of tropey writing advice of a uh, write, write the what you sto- know not only write what you know but write the story that you'd like to read oh sure sure yeah. i feel like reese maybe bertha was the only place she saw a character like her in jane eyre sure and if that's your only representation in literature it's understandable a that you yeah. have a love-hate relationship and b that you might want to carve out a different place yeah, for that exact character that's good um so okay for my concluding thought on this then i'm gonna make another one of my high school teachers angry um (laughs) by falling down on the the concept here of the duality of man i think i mentioned that in a previous episode right yeah um that uh she introduced that concept to us and then every time we analyzed a story we talked about the duality of man she said it's not always just about the duality of man (laughs) um but so that that duality here you know she's um the the character and the author is caught between worlds um doesn't really belong to either um but somehow belongs to both uh and you've got that with with bertha here um i'm gonna just distill it down and and talk about the image of fire here uh on the last page there's a wall of fire that protects her but it's too hot and it scorches her um so the duality of fire just Mm. by itself being a, a protective agent as well as a harmful agent um it's her death but also her triumph um it's uh the the i think it ties right in with that concept of of where this author and where this character belong where their identity is found Mm -hmm. it's it's the the when you have a difficulty finding where you belong it's because you belong in between Mm. um and that's i think something that's going on pretty heavily throughout this whole whole book yep yeah, that's that's a uh, that's very good. That's very good. So, any any other last thoughts here? No, or, I don't. Okay, I don't know how good that. the last one I had was, but I don't know. I don't think I'm gonna top it. I I don't think I I topped it either. But um, <laughs> all right. 
So there we are, come to the end of our discussion of Wide Sargasso Sea by Gene Reese. Neither of us uh, lost this episode either. So, so that's two out of four. Two out of four. Uh, we're halfway there. Whoa. Uh, thank you. Um, but let's go on to our ratings. Um, we will rate the scotch after we discuss our next book. Uh, but Ethan, would you rate the book Wide Sargasso Sea for me on a scale of buy, borrow, and forget about it? Um, I would rate it by, and as I, you know, started to say uh, prematurely, um, I would rate it by the Norton Critical Edition edited by edited by Judith L. Raskin. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be other good critical editions. Um, I don't know. I haven't exhaustively researched it, but this one, I can say positively, does have extremely helpful footnotes, and mm-hmm. for the the tragically little I got into them, really interesting um uh supplementary material including including quotes from the relevant parts of Jane Eyre um yeah you know if you want to if you either had been a long time since you read Jane Eyre or if you didn't want to read Jane Eyre first and just wanted the relevant most relevant passages even those are are in it so it's a it's a neat package um and you know the the temptation is to is to say read Jane Eyre then read this book you know we talked about oh sure we talked about Star Wars in both episodes we did (laughs) Uh, but you know I I I want to say I think if you're interested in it based on having heard us talk about it I guess first of all sorry for spoiling everything (laughs) but second of all like I think you absolutely can read this first oh sure um you might then be inspired to go on to read Jane Eyre but Partly because I like this book and I don't like Jane Eyre, I'm tempted to say, like, certainly don't let that stop you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so my... Um, I'm also going to rate this by... Um, largely, I think it's an important book. Uh, I think it, it has some significance for the landscape of literature since its publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, like, Jane Eyre... It, it's that's true of Jane Eyre also. Um, I think that's an important book for the history of literature. Um, and then this just builds on that even more. Um, I, beyond just getting a, a Norton Critical Edition, I'm going to say fi- if you can get one used, buy one used. Find one that somebody wrote notes in. You're going like, to say I find one like, that three extremely intelligent, apparently, people wrote notes in? Right. I feel like I got um, s- sort of a, a distillation of, of three different... Uh, um college courses uh on literature uh that included this as as one of the texts uh through those notes oh you're so you're a uh, uh used copy it does have like the used sticker and From, some of like the big cover oh yeah sticker like that that like strip of tape across the front right only a college bookstore would exactly be a, a book that way so, so yeah, egregiously yes it probably um, has been used in one or more actual college courses right well one of the one of the uh business cards i have is from california state university oh, Northridge, sure, sure, sure. from a, an associate professor don't, here don't so. say their name probably uh, i'm not gonna say the name <laughs> um but uh yeah it's uh it's it yeah definitely yeah. used in in a college so I, awesome. I think that added to it you know i got the good footnotes i got the good critical stuff on the uh on the on the ends and then i got some notes in the margins from people who were taking and, uh, and a college class on also this. fortunately you got like 
the copy that the good students and the, the good students, the intelligent ones, yeah, did the reading. You know, sometimes you know I find a, a book with those notes in the margin, and it's just like, oh, you're not as smart as I am. Um, you, but these people, I think, as... they're like just about equal to me, if not more wow. smart. Wow. Yeah. I was gonna say <laughs> the worst ones are the ones who are not as smart as they think they are. Oh yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. It always. I I kept thinking when you were talking about that of uh, our beloved college professors Lars and Angie Johnson yes um who as I understand have multiple books in their house with dialogue notes yes where they, one, they communicate to one another one has read a, a text and annotated it and the other one would read the text That's... and then like argue with <sighs> yes. their notes and then maybe the first the first of the two of them would reread the text and, and argue back yeah and I've always just wanted to uh uh you know just steal one of those books right just to right. have and to see that that is one thing i'll say was disappointing to me there was cl- very clearly multiple different handwritings in this book but they didn't seem they to communicate in... with one another sure. uh, i definitely responded to a few of them so uh whoever owns this book after after i, I was gonna say it maybe up. i need to borrow it oh, yeah there you go <laughs> Um, all right, rate the pairing for us, Ethan, between uh, Lefroy 10-year and Wide Sogasso C on a scale of perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, and total mismatch. I'm going to actually say perfect match. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sort of, like, uh, surface level or, or obvious... Um, pairing would have been a good rum for this book oh, because of you know we're in we're in jamaica and dominica yeah. the the <laughs> producers of the of the world's finest rums yep. um but in the realm of scotch i don't think you could find a, a real better match than lafroy sure um the the elements of of you know smoke and uh 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 even just like mm. saltiness like the the sea air um mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to make too, like, glib of a set of comparisons, but, like, it seemed like spiritually a lot of the the um, set dressing, as it were, of this book mm-hmm. matched up with a lot of the flavor notes in the in the Lefroy. Yeah. That's, yeah, so I would say perfect match. I, I'm, I'm right with you. I'm going to say perfect match. Also, um, when I picked the scotch, it, it had to be... It had to be Lefroy at this point. Like I said, it'd been bouncing around in the back of my head. It's like I'm gonna pick that for one of our sure. one of our recording sessions sometime. Uh, and this one, this one had to be it. It had to be. It's just, I I don't know if I can add more to it. It's perfect. Yeah, that makes so. sense to me. Very good. Uh, all right, next uh, next time, gentle listener, we are going to be discussing Despair by Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, so read along with that and give us your feedback. Go to tapestryradio.org. Uh, find us on Twitter at Room with Scotch or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. Ethan, where can they find you? I am at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I also uh, write the script for a webcomic called Pin Porter Girl Detective. That's at, I believe, pinporterdetective.com. Otherwise, just type in Pin Porter Girl Detective to Google. Sure. Uh, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Uh, so until next time, gentle listener, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if we see ourselves in the mirror surrounded by fire. Always do. Yep. Happens.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.